You are listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. A major development in the decades-long lawsuit over Hawaiian homelands. HBR's Ku'uvehi Hiraishi joins us this morning. Hi, Ku'uvehi. Good morning, Catherine. Yes, so uh, the news has been heard. Hawaii lawmakers agreed Tuesday to appropriate $328 million from the general fund to settle all claims by Hawaiian homelands beneficiaries in a class action lawsuit that dates back to 1999. And these were charges against the state over uh, uh, the Department of Hawaiian Homelands breaches of, of trust. So uh, after more than two decades of litigation, including two trials and two appeals to the Hawaii Supreme Court, the legislature accepted the Attorney General's recommendation to settle these claims. Uh, House Finance Chair Sylvia Luke called the vote historic yesterday and, and credited the budget surplus, the unprecedented surplus. We keep hearing about this legislative session uh, for really prompting the discussion to come to a resolution uh, on this case for those who who might not be familiar, the class action lawsuit is known as the uh, Kalima versus State uh, lawsuit, sought damages for delays in homesteading awards and, and lost opportunity for these 2,700 uh, claimants, Native Hawaiian beneficiaries. And this is actually dating back uh, to not receiving awards between 1959 and 1988. Yeah, and, uh, and basically which, so many people have died waiting uh, for property, for land. Yes, so included in that 2,700 uh, are about approximately 1,000 of, of the 2,700, according to, to the lawyers for the plaintiffs, have died uh, during over the course of the litigation and since this all sort of began. And so uh, we do know that their uh, heirs, uh, will be family will be able to claim uh, the the compensation that's due to them, even though they have passed. And so that's part of the process. Um, Renette Achong, whose father Joseph Ching, uh, died during the litigation and has been pretty much a, a vocal um, advocate in, throughout the the remainder of, of the time that she's been involved in the lawsuit. So she's you know very thankful for for the result. Um, Honolulu attorney Carl, Carl Verity is co-counsel for the plaintiffs in, in the Kalima case, along with Tom Grande, and he says it could take his clients at least a year to receive compensation. The next step in the process is for uh, a claims administrator to gather data and verify each client's claims, starting with the period of damages. So they need to verify when the client applied for a homestead, when they received one, if they did, and if they passed, when that happens, uh, here's Verity. Once those dates are known, the damages for each applicant uh, will be calculated individually on that basis. And then once the calculations of damages are reviewed and approved by the court, there'll be a final fairness hearing and people will then receive their compensation. We expect that process to take probably the better part of a year because it has to be done carefully, accurately, and fairly. And we'll make sure that as many people get as much as possible to compensate them for the breaches of trust. So Verity, you know, says um, the settlement terms, the details have not yet been unsealed, unlike uh, what we may have been hearing in, in a media report. He, he called the courts as soon as he heard to make sure that wasn't the case. And so plaintiffs haven't really been able to comment on the specifics of the settlement until that's unsealed. Uh, but a uh, general comment from plaintiff, lead plaintiff in the case, Leona Kalima, you know, she said this settlement uh, will change thousands of lives for the better. Um, Verity does expect, uh, so the bill right now, Senate Bill 3041, still needs a floor vote and final passage in the legislature and then go to the governor's uh, desk for a signature. And once that happens, uh, Verdi says he, he does expect uh, plaintiffs to be uh, out there and uh, will hold a press conference once that once that all happens. And the governor's office did indicate uh, that he does intend to, uh, to sign it. Uh, any indication from uh, lawmakers when that will come up for a vote? No, I have not seen anything from lawmakers or heard anything. But yes, Governor, you know, he did say that, yes, the settlement is good, but he does 
uh, intend. As we all know, uh, there is another piece of legislation going through uh, the Capitol right now that would appropriate $600 million to the, to the Department of Hawaiian Homelands to address the wait list that's you know, currently on the table. And, and that's kind of another focus uh, that Governor wanted to pivot towards. But no timeline just yet on when that will happen. Yeah, but obviously uh, the big deal over this. I mean, you worked at uh, Department of Hawaiian Homelands uh, for a while as well in the communications department, so you know what a major development this is. This is, and, and, and uh, you know, I called the Department of Hawaiian Homelands yesterday to figure out uh, sort of what, you know, what their stance was on things, and uh, I think we'll hear more from them once uh, this is all unsealed and, and plaintiffs are, are um, out there to talk about what compensation means for them. Yeah, and if I recall, I think even uh, um, William Isla, as the administrator, he's kind of in a in a sensitive spot because I think his wife is covered under this um, lawsuit as well. But yeah, all his very wife, interesting. Yes, is a beneficiary. Yeah, all very interesting. But thanks so much, Kuvehi. Mahalo, Kate. We have been talking about the settlement of a lawsuit over the wait list for Hawaiian homelands with HPR's Kuvehi Hiraishi. For more on the story, head to HawaiiPublicRadio.org. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. We have part three of our series on the hibiscus coming up later on in the show. So we're testing your knowledge of the flower for today's Backyard Quiz. As many of you know, the state flower is the hibiscus. There are many varieties and colors, both introduced and native. You may have some in your your backyard, but not all that long ago, any hibiscus in any color could be considered the state flower. It wasn't until 1988 that the yellow hibiscus was designated as Hawaii state flower, but not just any yellow hibiscus. Uh, The one we're asking you to identify today is the one native to the Hawaiian Islands and listed on the Federal Endangered Species List. So for today's Backyard Quiz, can you name the yellow hibiscus that represents Hawaii? Either the Hawaiian or Latin name will do. As a final hint, the Hawaiian name in literal translation means the traveling green how. We will be back with the answer later in the show. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to strengthening family relationships, such as parents and children together. NareedHawaii.com. The average sale price of a single-family home in Hawaii, $1.4 million, according to Locations Hawaii. And you look at the state's minimum wage, $10.10 an hour, it's not hard to see how life can be a struggle for Alice households in Hawaii. Alice is an acronym for asset-limited, income-constrained, and employed, the term for working households that are just able to make ends meet. A new collective of 17 nonprofits is hoping to change that. They were brought together through a partnership between Aloha United Way and the Hawaii Community Foundation. Michelle Kohani is the Senior Vice President of Community Grants and Initiatives for the foundation. She sat down with the conversation's Russell Subiono to discuss how the collective will impact Hawaii's working poor. Do you have a percentage of how many of Hawaii households fall into the ALICE category? So Alice, just a survival budget or below Alice, which is living at the poverty level, 
we knew that prior to COVID, about 42% of Hawaii families were in Alice or below. And now we estimate that post-COVID, if we can call it post-COVID, but where we are today, that that number is up to closer to somewhere around 59%. And so we definitely were talking about the issues of economics and the inability for economic mobility here in Hawaii. And COVID really highlighted and exacerbated those inequities. And we saw some populations just really couldn't make it. So the the impact of the pandemic on Alice households has been significant to the point that we see a significant increase in those that we would consider Alice. As this collective comes together to develop shared goals, create strategies and indicators of progress on key issues, what are some of the key issues facing Alice households? There are many, right? But when we think about affordable housing, for example, the barriers to housing just capital for down payment and closing costs, and even for rental. Some Alice families cannot go into homeownership opportunities at this point, but even for our rental, to have first month's, last month's rent, and to be able to get yourself moving and get started, those are struggles. What we know for sure is that when we talk about Alice, we're talking about households who have very little savings because they are living paycheck to paycheck, so there's not a lot of reserve. And when we think about what has happened through the pandemic with loss of jobs, loss of people have spent down on their savings. And so what little nest egg is left or is there any left? And how do we strengthen and start to build assets in terms of savings and long, longer term stability so that they have something to fall back on? That's very difficult to do to set something aside when you're living paycheck to paycheck. And so what kind of strategies do we employ? And so what can we do to address that? And so this cohort is really about bringing some of the best and brightest of our nonprofit organizations together. At the Community Foundation, we have adopted a change framework that is really grounded in common data, shared goals, collective action. And the ALICE percentage of our population in Hawaii is one of our data points. And so it made sense to us to partner with AUW around that common data We will work with this collective to identify shared goals, but really the crux of this is collective action, that no one nonprofit is going to tackle this issue alone. The Community Foundation is not going to tackle this alone. AUW cannot tackle it alone. And so really it's the power of the collective and how can we step into action and being proactive, bringing Alice family voices to the table to help with solution building thinking about what resources are out there, how do we collectively act to make sure that folks are housed and that they can rebuild financial stability within those households. You know, Alice has many different components, early child care costs, transportation costs, but really when AUW went out to community to think about Where do we tailor our efforts? What are the most critical? And the most critical landed from our community perspective, that if we don't have a stable shelter over our heads and we can't rely on some financial stability, then we can't even think about transportation, childcare. I mean, those are all, we're trading off right now, right? We're we're not doing daycare so that we can put food on the table. We're, and so how do we just focus on shelter and financial stability, so then we can expand. So these nonprofits are really hyper-focused in those two areas, whether that's policy advocacy in those areas, whether that's real financial stability, credit building, debt reduction, housing support. And so these nonprofits you'll find are all sort of in that particular space. And then together, we will figure out the collective action, what strategies, what innovation can we come up with to take action to get meaningful results for families who are in this Alice population. Can you share a little bit about who these nonprofits are and maybe what each one brings to the table? Yeah, I mean, I think of organizations like Hawaiian Community Assets and the Hawaii Homeownership Center, right? They are working directly with families around credit repair, debt reduction, savings for down payment or rental assistance. And so they're hyper-focused on helping families secure housing. 
You have the legal aid to are helping families stabilize and stay in housing if they're there, but they have legal issues. And so they bring forward a legal component. Waikiki Community Center, long history and stability in their community has been a beacon as a community center for all kinds of service to stabilize households. And then I think of the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement, who runs a trades academy, and their focus is on increasing wages. So they do CDL licensing, a police academy, a fire academy, so that folks really have the skill sets necessary for living wages so that we can up what the household income is. And so they each sort of have a different component that they bring to the table. But collectively, we believe that if we can get all of these organizations to work together towards common goals, that we can really take action and address the needs of Alice households here in Hawaii. You touched on increasing household income. That seems to be an area that needs a lot of addressing. The cost of purchasing a home is skyrocketing or has been skyrocketing in recent months. The cost of renting a home, that continues to climb. And it seems like there's little that the average person can do to control those markets. But as households, what kind of opportunities are out there for people in Alice households to get training or experience and earn more without going out and getting that second or third job? It's really about increasing the income, right? So getting some kind of certification or certificate degree just to increase that income. The Appleseed and its Budget and Policy Center has been a strong advocate for increasing minimum wage. Now, there's there's not always agreement around that issue, but how do we build traction on what needs to happen in order for us to face the reality that our wages here in Hawaii are not meeting up with the the cost of living and what can we do? So we are advocates of earned income tax credits to be refundable and permanent, but we need more voice around that. That is another uh, anti-poverty strategy. It brings additional income to a household. We also have community development financial institutions. Feed the Hunger is in this cohort. So is Hawaii Community Assets has a lending arm. CNHA has a lending arm. But access to capital for additional income to the household, whether that's a micro enterprise, you know, we have a lot of folks who are crafters and artists, and that is a viable way for additional income into the household that they're not doing a storefront business, but they're supplementing household income with some of their hobbies or their crafts. And these CDFIs bring small capital, you know, access to small dollar amounts that are not really what a bank looks at, but gives opportunity for families to supplement their income. So, you know, the opportunities and what we're looking into are vast. And, and really, that's why we want to be working with nonprofits closely. Of what innovation, what ideas can we come up with to really support these families? At the conclusion of this three-year project, how do you anticipate the outcome will contribute to all the efforts going on around the state to help more families achieve financial stability and obtain access to affordable housing? I hope that we will have a strategy that we've tested and that we can replicate with more groups and in other geographies. And I hope that we can use some innovation, work together to test some strategy. And then by the end of this cohort, be able to say, here's what worked, here's what we had to adjust. And are we able to scale this for success for more families. That's really the goal of collective action. Thank you so much for your time, Michelle. Thank you. Have a great day, Russell. That was Hawaii Community Foundation's Michelle Kalhani talking with HPR's Russell Subiano. We'll have a link to more information about the nonprofit collective and the focus of its work on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org.
Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art's Homa Nights, offering extended evening hours, entertainment, and art experiences on Fridays and Saturdays. Hours and admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Marks Cafe, with the growing importance of cybersecurity, we'll find out how one program gets middle school students involved. The program is called Gen Cyber, and we'll find out how students can jumpstart their cybersecurity pathway with this five-day boot camp. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Congressional pork earmarks in the budget are back again, and Hawaii ra- uh, raked in more than $200 million. That is the subject of today's Reality Check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Nick Ruby joins us on the line today from Washington, D.C. Good morning. Hi, Catherine. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, so uh, that's quite a bit of money. It's $265 million, to be exact. Yeah, it's it's a lot of money, um, but it's really just a fraction of the discretionary spending that um, uh, th- that is in the federal budget. But earmarks uh, for a long time sort of had a bad rap here in Washington. They were associated with um, pork barrel spending, you know, the bridge to nowhere and corruption. There was a California lawmaker who actually went to prison. Uh, for bribery after he actually had a uh, a bribe menu that he would give to federal contractors to say, you know, get me this gift and I'll get you this federal contract uh, through this earmarking process. But, you know, a decade after these things were banned, after uh, all of those um, uh, problematic incidents, lawmakers said, you know what, who knows how to spend federal dollars better than us? We know our states and we know our districts. Uh, better than the administration. So we should have that ability to direct these federal dollars to the projects that we think are the most worthy. Well, you know, I, uh, we should probably acknowledge, and your story does acknowledge, that uh, it was uh, Senator Dan Inouye who was often referred to as the king of pork because he brought in a lot of money uh, to the state. That's right. So uh, Senator Inouye, um he he called himself the king of pork, which uh, was uh, kind kind of interesting. But it also sort of told you what you needed to know about what he and other Hawaii lawmakers valued um, at the time, and that's sort of bringing home the bacon, right? And so Senator Inouye, over a course of three years, uh, uh, he had brought home about one point two billion dollars um, in earmarks. Now, again, this is just a fraction of federal spending. So, for example, even this year, there's billions of dollars coming to Hawaii, but specifically, there's about $265 million that is specific to these earmarks. And this is money that uh, lawmakers like Senator Schatz and uh, Representative Case, who are both on their uh, respective appropriations committees, uh, say, will go to places that normally might not have the ability to get federal funds, um, and they'll go to projects that... Um, might uh, not otherwise uh, sort of uh, be able to get over the hump without these dollars. And so a couple of examples of that include money for um, uh, the Domestic Violence uh, Action Center and and um, possibly uh, money for to build an affordable housing complex for victims of domestic abuse. There's also money for conservation efforts such as coral restoration um, and, uh, and uh, trying to save Hawaii's endangered forest birds from extinction. So really, it runs the gamut. There's also tens of millions of dollars in military spending as well. And uh, uh, you reached out to uh, other members of the delegation, Hirona's office, Kaikaheli's office? Uh, That's right. Yeah, I reached out to all four members of the delegation. Um, I didn't hear back from uh, Representative Kaheli's office or Senator Hirona's office by the time we published the story. Um, But you know, Senator Schatz and Representative Case, again, uh, the two people who sit on the money committees here in Congress on behalf of Hawaii, um, had some good discussions with them about uh, about this money, where it's going, and essentially their excitement uh, about the fact that earmarks are back. Yeah, pet projects, but uh, certainly a worthwhile 
uh, programs as well. And I know, you know, being there in D.C., you've got uh, your hand on the pulse of things. Uh, I understand that uh, Kaikaheli is back in D.C. this week. <laughs> That's right. Um, uh, Congressman Kahele uh, made headlines uh, after uh, we reported that he pretty much hadn't been here in Washington for about four months and was voting uh, remotely. Um, it sort of became the chatter, chatter up here on Capitol Hill. And, um, you know, uh, the, the, that same chatter got a little bit louder uh, this week when people all of a sudden started seeing him around for the first time since January. All right. Well, we'll wait to see what he decides to do, whether he stays in the race and runs for reelection or runs for governor. But thanks so much, Nick. All right. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. That was reporter Nick Gruby with today's Reality Check. You can read his stories on online. Uh, go to civilbeat.org. Student loan debt here in the U.S. is said to be a staggering $2 trillion. So what do we do? Forgive and forget. That is the subject of the Longview today. Our analyst, Neil Milner, joins us to talk about this. Good morning. Good morning. So, yeah, kind of scary numbers. It's scary numbers. The number, as you say, is about $2 billion. It's the largest amount of debt in the country with the exception of mortgage debt. So, and it affects lots of people. It affects thousands of people. The average debt is about uh, $37,000, and it lingers. It takes a long time to pay. What's happened recently is the, well, there are two things that happened recently. One is that the pandemic obviously made things worse, and the Biden administration granted some moratoriums on not forgiving. There's a little bit of forgiving loans. That's still small potatoes. But right now, uh, a moratorium on having to make payments. There was a huge increase in um, non-payments during the pandemic. What's But what is now floating around in the wind is what do you do about these, learn, these uh, loans long term? And there are people, progressives especially, who think they should all be forgiven. Rather than talking about what the policy arguments are among the political elites, it's interesting to see how people's attitudes toward these student loans, the public's attitudes, have changed over time. And it's really dramatic. Um, in 1980, about and these are good polls, 1980, about uh, two-thirds of the public, more than two-thirds of the public, said parents and children should be responsible for their college education, which means you pay it all back. It was the same in 2010, which is, you know, for 30 years, that percentage stayed about the same. But between 2010 and 2020, in what the, stu the people have written about this called a, 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 almost an unprecedented change in public opinion, because public opinion changes pretty slowly, it dramatically changed the other way. Now, most of the public think that either the government should pay for all of our college education, that's, a, that's about 20, a little more than 20 percent, to that the government should definitely contribute to the education. That means contribute, not just give loans. And that's now about 65 to 70 percent, a huge increase. So you have the confluence of all these things at the same time. Plus the situation that Biden is now in, which is do I, do I create another moratorium and postpone it until things get better? And some people say things will never get better if you look at what the loans do to others, while other people say there are things that are really unfair about forgiving loans. Some of that comes from conservatives. Some of it comes from other people. But that's the situation we're in now, and it's back in the news because – you hear it in the media, and uh, that means that soon you're, something is going to happen. Right. It's election year for many yeah. people, and uh, they're, they're thinking about that. Uh, but, yeah, the cost of, of college is really kind of obscene. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you went through it for your kids later than I did, and the difference is dramatic. Um, and the, 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 there are a couple of reasons for this, right? One is that the 
cost of colleges has gone way up. Secondly, debt in general has gone way up. If you ask people why they've changed their minds about this or why they think government should come and step in, it's what you hear lots of times when people say government should step in on other things. It's gotten out of hand. We can't afford it. Uh, uh, They quote in one of the studies an African-American man saying, look, he said, I understand now that you really need a college education to get up in the world, which, in fact, is true. You need, the difference between having a B.A. and not having a B.A. economically, short-term and long-term, is, is pretty big, despite the fact that you may have your kids living on a couch right now. That's, that's clearly the case. But he said, I don't have the money. I know what I have to do, but I don't have the money to do it. And that's the kind of a straightforward argument. It's not a sophisticated economic argument, although there's a lot of economic sense to it. But at the same time, it's a powerful political argument. When we talk about this issue, I certainly hear it, you hear stories. That's what you hear, stories about people suffering. My daughter, who's been out of college for 25 years, was just telling me a lot of her friends who graduated when she did, still have debt. Can't buy a house. That's the big thing. Can't buy a house. Right. And then, as you mentioned, with the pandemic, where people lost jobs, and then, you know, it's just like, you know, and and in the stories that we heard earlier in the uh, earlier segments, you know, yeah, minimum wage just doesn't cut it. And when you're you're talking about a house that costs more than a million dollars here, it's hard. Oh, yeah. I mean, minimum wage... In anywhere in the country now, a minimum wage will not get you to will not get you a house to buy. That's clearly out, and so you have a lot of things contributing to this. And if you, you know, if you wanted to think of all the different things you could do to make this better uh, in the future, you could you could ch- lower college costs. One of the ways to do that is to have uh, community college free tuition for community colleges. Um, you can, you know, you can work on things that would that increase affordable housing. But right now, this question is: we've got this huge amount of debt that affects a lot of people. They knew that they were the debt wasn't forced upon them, but in a sense, that's how they made it through. And now, what do we do? What do we do with this big amount of debt? And that's going to be. The college debt is a very tempting political issue in the midterms coming up because um, it's clearly gone up in the priorities of of people. If you look at surveys, it's it's gone up. Democrats don't have so much trouble with it. And they're, of course, the underdogs in the 2000 in the midterms because it's part of their argument. It's part of their sensibility and values to say we should help these people out for conservatives. It's a little bit, that is Republicans, it's a little bit harder because there are fiscal arguments that you can make against this, uh, that it's inflationary. Maybe you can make the argument that um, it's these people knew what they were getting into. But by the same token, when you are on the campaign trail, it's hard to simply make arguments against something. You want to, you want to offer people something. So it it will be... It will be tempting. But, of course, one other thing, there's a huge difference between what people, what the public thinks about student loans, which has changed, or government responsibility, and what actually happens if this would become a significant issue in Congress, because then all hell breaks loose again. Yeah, I mean, we've always heard about the, you know, the growing national debt, and here we're just sure. You know, throw a couple more million. On well, top. but but besides that, what you what you'll have as soon as it goes to Congress in in a serious way, if it's like other issues, negative party uh, identification starts coming in polarization. If you look at the data right now, there isn't that much, and it's not even reported very much difference between Democrats and Republicans on this. If it becomes a, a, a manifestly political issue, you're likely to see divisions on. On, on Democrat versus Republican grounds, and people will shift their opinions according to the parties that they usually identify with or that they hate. We're not at that stage yet, and Biden can do a lot if he wants to without getting at that stage. Yeah, but uh, yeah, we just have to think long and hard about this. Is uh, you know uh, who pays, how much should we pay? Uh, yeah, how does that all work? 
Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, you're taking a group of people here, and this is where it gets a little bit more complicated. There are lots of folks who approve of paying, of having the government forgive some of the loans, at least for some low-income people. But there's also an argument that says you're benefiting richer people in some ways. If you waive it all, then essentially people who went to the fancy schools uh, are going to get more money out of this than people who went to regular states universities, like, say, the University of Hawaii. Yeah, so how how, how do you be fair? In yeah, and there's a lot to argue. It's a very interesting issue. All right. Well, thanks so much, Neil. Sure. We've been talking with Neil Milner on The Long View about college debt. Uh, we'll have links on our website, uh, hawaiipublicradio.org. is the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. And as we wind down April, our kulea, our Pacific Golden Plovers, are getting ready to make the long trip back to Alaska for the summer. If you're lucky, you might get to see them flock together en masse before they depart for the three-day nonstop voyage across the ocean. We've got their song for you, thanks to the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Here's University of, at, of Hawaii at Hilo Professor Patrick Hart with your Manu Minute. The song of the kolea, or Pacific Golden Plover, can only be heard from August to April in Hawaii. By late April, parts of their golden plumage have changed to black and white, and they embark on an incredible three- to four-day non-stop journey to Alaska to breed. When the parents are done caring for their babies, all the kolea return to Hawaii by late August to escape the cold Alaska winters. Kolea are long-legged shorebirds that are most often seen on shorelines and lawns foraging for insects and worms. The annual migrations of Kolea are thought to have been one of the many cues used by Polynesians in their navigations across the Pacific. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from Evergreen by Debra. At evergreenbydebra.com, learn more about porcelain tile by Royal Mosa, made using recycled water and hydroelectric power to create floor and wall tiles inspired by trends in design and architecture. today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you for the specific name of Hawaii State Flower in Latin or Hawaiian. If you just thought hibiscus, that would have been accurate starting in the early 1920s when the blossom became the official territorial flower. And if you thought red hibiscus, we'd understand. Many have recognized that variety as the emblem of Hawaii, which is why you will still find postcards with images of the red version. But in 1988, that all changed. That's when our state flower was designated as the yellow hibiscus, but not just any yellow version, a very specific color and species, the hibiscus brackenridge eye or the maohauhele, which are the two answers we were accepting for today's backyard quiz answer. Thanks to the Native Hawaiian Plants website for this one, there are five hibiscus species native to Hawaii, and many consider them to represent royalty, power, and respect. Thanks to our tropical climate, the hibiscus plant blooms year-round, but sadly, flowers tend to only last for a day or so. And congratulations to our winner, Mindy Hansen, a sustaining HPR member. Uh, thanks for participating. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one you want to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. You know, for more than a decade and a half, the hibiscus lady, Jill Coriel, has been searching for relatives of Valentine Stillman Holt. 
You may not be familiar with the name, but Coriel considers him to be a key character in the history of hybridizing hibiscus in Hawaii. It took a chance meeting in a church hall one Sunday with uh, Arma Richardson Owana to find the missing piece of the puzzle. Owana is the executive president of the Nawahine o Kamehameha, the Royal Order of Kamehameha in the state. For Owana, it turned out to be a voyage of discovery. The Royal Order is all about honoring the lineage of the Hawaiian monarchy, but Owana didn't know about the notable botanical lineage of her family. And a bunch of us women had gone to church at St. Andrews one morning. And after church, they have a paina, sit down and a little bit to eat. And so here we are, three of us ladies in our white mumu'us, and this lady is sitting there with this beautiful, beautiful double hibiscus in her hair. And you can't help but mention it. It's pretty to look at. It's dainty. It's not so frilly that it's flopping over. But then she shared with us that this lady, who happened to be walking to our table, uh, Jill Coriel, she is known as the hibiscus lady. And she hand-pollinates and does the hybrid uh, hibiscus flowers. So we get introduced to her and start talking, and she's like, well, does anyone here know Valentine Stillman Hope? And my cousin and I are sitting there. My cousin is Ka'ala Pat Richardson uh, Ridley um, Jane. And she says, we're both like Uncle Val. (laughs) And it was a shock because she had been looking for any family relation to him for like 15 years. And Valentine Stillman Holt, born on Valentine's Day, he worked for the University of Hawaii. He was an assistant agricultural worker, and that was his job, to hybridize and hand-pollinate all these different breeds of hibiscus. And he did over 500, which got sent out across the world. And so I'm like, oh, cool. Well, that next Monday, my friend and I were down at her place in Mokulei'a, because we wanted to learn more. And that first day we visited, all we did was talk. We didn't touch a single hibiscus. But the second and third visits, we did. And I've been fortunate enough that the four hibiscus plants that I hand-pollinated all turned into seeds and grew into a new hibiscus tree with special flowers. And my last one that Jill has actually given me, and I'm praying I don't kill it, is a double red hibiscus. And it's very frilly, almost like watching somebody spin around in a real frilly skirt full of color. And we've decided that we're going to name it Valentine Stillman Hope, just like the person who did all that work over 100 years ago. Well, that's fitting, and, and it is a gorgeous blossom. Yes, yes. So what does I it mean? I remember hibiscus when I was a little girl, and mostly I remember my grandmother used to use them. I swear they looked like caps on her head because she put the big 12-inch blossom in the middle of her hair. And today I learned you can wear hibiscus, and it can last more than a day. All you got to do is put it in the refrigerator, wear it, put it in the refrigerator, and it'll last two or three days. There's scented hibiscus. I didn't know that. So we're kind of blessed with this array of colors that come out now. So now you've inherited a hobby that's probably been in your genes all this time. You know, I never thought of myself as a green thumb. I do live on the sixth floor of a condo. I have a L-shaped lanai that now grows hibiscus. I have a couple hibiscus plants, tea leaves, bird nest, even hina hina. And I never, I don't grow things. But now I can say I do. And it's because of people like Joe who, just by asking, anybody heard of Valentine Stillman Holt? That's all it took. And I guess it's been two years now. And I've got at least three plants on my property, two of which I hand-pollinated myself. So, yeah, it's kind of get a little possessive over those plants. Well, you mentioned the Royal Order of Kamehameha. So I guess, yeah. you know, knowing that you are helping to preserve some of this history, 
uh, that most people may not be aware of. You know, I mean, if if she thinks that he did so much uh, early on, you know, to dub him father of modern hibiscus hybrids, I mean, that's something. And because maybe because he was the assistant agricultural intern, or well, I don't know what the titles were back in 1910 and 05, but to do 500, each one takes at least a year to grow. I know when I did my four original ones, there was no guarantee. Then she'd call and say, oh, one popped its seeds. And it's really cute because she can tell the difference between a seed bundle and a blossom. And she puts those little, you know, we get our organza bags that we put our little jewelries in. Yes. She puts it over that whole seed bundle and waits for the seed. Uh, apparently, when the seed gets ripe, it literally pops and sprays the hibiscus seeds around the ground. And the hibiscus seeds are really tiny, but that's what you need. So she's taught us a lot. My friends and I have gone down and we learned how to take splices off of a plant and how to cut it long ways on one side, how to put this root growth compound on it, and how to propagate our own little seedlings, which my two are still surviving since December 4th. So that's all I can say. There's still a lot. Well, that's terrific that you can help Valentine's legacy live on. Yes, yes. And, you know, it's really neat because through Face, I met his children, grandchildren, actually. And I found in my own genealogy chart that we are like second cousins once moved over. So it's my great-grandmother's cousins who Valentine Stillman is. But the whole thing is we can teach our children what our own history is about. And kids in school today, I, I think it's pretty neat to hand pollinate something and it actually grows and, and produces a flower or a fruit, you know. So you can create new blossoms yeah. and like mm-hmm. Jill, name them for your children and grandchildren. Yes, yes, you know. And and that's why I I, I was chuckling because some of the names that, people give their plants they're they're out there i hand pollinated a plant we was a jira which was an adolescent african-american girl and i pollinated it with i crossed it with a colonel frank i forget the last name but um it came out to a beautiful orangey pink blossom and now i have to find a name for that blossom I have a friend who's been doing this with me, and we kind of actually put together a song, and we called it Mokulei of Beauty. And it's because all of these hibiscus come from Mokulei and the hibiscus lady. And they're all different colors of purples and blues and greens and oranges. Um, they even She even had one called uh, Pat uh, Bacon. No, huh. Namaka bacon. Yes, which was a purple, purple type of um, hibiscus, and that's for the last two years. That's how I send my family their Christmas gifts. They get a hibiscus plant from Hawaii, so they're growing in Texas and Seattle right now. <laughs> well, you know, I think way back when, you know, we were looking for different things that were exotic to us right? Blossoms from elsewhere. Uh, mm-hmm. And while we have our own native hibiscus here, you know, it, it is just wonderful to see n- new flowers appear uh, yes. and to help propagate and, these and things. And then to learn that there's different ways to... I did not know for a long time that you can make tea or juice out of hibiscus. I've had red hibiscus tea and I'm like, Oh, it's so refreshing, something different, you know. Mm -hmm. I have fantasies of also using the petals itself. Mm -hmm. When you make homemade paper and you layer it and you kind of, it's an embossing of that part of the petal on it. So we've been, I've been playing with that. Okay. Um, (laughs) Well, because they, you know, we went to a paper making class and it's like, oh my God, 
we can use almost every single thing we grow for something else. So it sounds like but, you're uh, you're having a lot of fun with your new hobby. I'm having a lot of fun being retired. <laughs> I know that's not your story, but let me tell you, we only get out of life what we put in it. And if you stay home and rock yourself slowly on your chair, that's what you're going to get. But I'm not the most fit person, but if I can walk for five minutes, then today I went to Waikiki by that barefoot snack bar and... We found some flowers we never saw, and I, I guess it looks like how or beets blossom the morning. But they're just beautiful, and we just take it for granted and walk by, you know. But I like to think we could affect people, we could affect children. Take the time to see where you live and what's in your backyard. It's, it's not just the concrete of Waikiki. There's beautiful things out there, and hibiscus is now everywhere i go i look at a hibiscus i need to look at what color what the center is whether it's a single or a double or even a triple it's, even in retirement you still learn yep the wonder of the world yes 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 well we thank you for chatting with us and sharing your family history and keep on propagating yes and if if, if there's ever a message to get out there I would say it's you get what you put out. What you put out there comes back to you. And I'm hoping putting out plants, putting out flowers, putting more oxygen in the air is just good for all of us. Good advice. And if we can hold Valentine Stillman Holtz, 500 or so hybrid hibiscus out there as a high bar. And Irma, you have 496 more to go. have to go now. But up tomorrow, we talk to one of the few women brewing beer in the state. Plus, we wrap up our series on the hibiscus. Got a story you'd like to share? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at Hawaii Public Radio. And email works to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to something you heard? Find our archive shows on the conversation page of our website. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation 